We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast is sponsored by Liquid Death. Are you thirsty? Parched? Do you like dark and eerie sinister names for your beverages? Then you'll love Liquid Death. Go to liquiddeath.com, use the promo code BIGBLUE for a refreshing beverage ahead of Halloween season. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host Nick Villato. Today, we've got a special guest on the show. It's Danny Kelly of The Ringer. You know him for his draft guy. You know him for his takes on Twitter. You know him for his Seahawks fandom, maybe, hopefully. (laughs) Because today, we will be previewing this Giants-Seahawks game. And I was just talking about it with Danny before the podcast, Nick, Danny, and I. And I just, two months ago, if you told us we're previewing a week eight game between the Giants and the Seahawks with playoff implications on both sides and a combined record of 10 and 4, (laughs) <laughs> People would have literally thought I was crazy. Be like, you're a total yeah. idiot, you dude. These teams are going to be picking. It's going to be competing for who gets the better draft pick, and you're not going to want either of your teams to win. But now the total opposite has come true, and it's just been a crazy ride for the Giants fans this year, and it's been a crazy ride for the Seahawks as well. Now, in the driver's seat, some might say to win that NFC West. I think they might be the best team in the West at this point. It's just crazy to say, but it's possible. It's at uh, least so a conversation. Danny, yeah, yeah, it's in the conversation. So, Danny, how are you doing today? And thanks again for joining us. I'm doing great. And I, I, while you're talking, I was like, I wonder which one's actually more surprising that the Giants are doing what they're doing six and one or the Seahawks are, you know, yeah. looking like potentially maybe the best team in the NFC West. I don't know if I'd go that quite that far, but I think um, they're certainly a lot more competitive than I thought they would be. Um, you know, I didn't I never really bought into the idea that they were going to be like going for a top five pick. I just like Pete Carroll just it's his he's never put together that bad of a team like he always right. can kind of scrape together some wins just because they tend to drag their opponents down into the mud and like you know win on the margins and things like that but um i mean geno smith being really good is like massive for this team so yeah yeah danny that's what i think we'll start with because at the beginning of yeah. the season i said on this podcast and i felt gross about it that i had this weird feeling that seattle was going to be surprisingly good but then i said i think it's going to be like i feel disgusting about it <laughs> what do you attribute geno smith's ascension to like how is this happening and and what does it say about this just coaching staff in place it's tough because it's it's funny because literally i don't think the seahawks even thought geno was this guy i mean they they waited like for a large part of the off season to resign him. They gave him like a one year deal. It's, I think it's like $3 million or something really small. They, there was a, there was a world in which they weren't actually going to bring him back. Like they, it, they were pretty much just driving a hard bargain for the entire off season. Um, and I know that just from talking to people, they wanted drew lock to win the job. So the funny part of the whole thing is they didn't even really know that Gino was going to be this good. I think it just kind of is a testament to Gino for, um, the work he's put in over the years as a backup, obviously, you know, it's one of those jobs where you could probably skate by if you wanted to a little bit, um, and, you know, not really try and work on your game, but he clearly has been working his ass off to get where he is. And, and, um, I think the big thing with Gino versus especially like Russell Wilson last year is the way in which he runs the offense. Basically Wilson, you know, famously very good at improvising and getting out of the pocket and scrambling and, and doing all that stuff. And that I think can be frustrating for an offensive coordinator because it's like, basically that's not the offense we're calling, man. Like 
you're kind of going off script here. And I think the biggest thing you can say about Gino is he runs their offense like really efficiently. He's running the scheme. He's running what they want to do. Um, and I think that that sets a foundation for them to like do everything they want. The run game, it just kind of all works together. It's all clicking right now. And, you know, Gino is, I think he's making some pretty incredible throws. It, it doesn't feel like a, like an aberration or, or a flash in the pan. It feels actually real the way he's playing. Yeah. That's kind of where I was going to go next on the Gino front, Danny, because, you know, you look at it, you look at something like for what we saw this week with um, Marquise Goodwin on the bench being like Gino audible into that. Like the, yeah. Gino was the one who audible pre-snap and said, look at the leverage of that corner. We can hit yep. this. We can hit this nine route, like throws it perfect touchdown. And it's not just to me the throws he's making, but it's the command of the offense that you talked about. That's something that yes. Daniel Jones has done a much better job of in the last three weeks, command the offense. But now we hope the big throws will come too. And they and there was one in this game, the last game against uh, to Darius Slayton against the Jaguars. But Gino's combining the command of the offense and the big time throws, the tight windows, the shots right. down the field. And that's kind of why I think you're probably in the book of, you know, you're in the camp of saying maybe this isn't an aberration. As far as how did this happen would be my question. Like, how is a quarterback who we've seen so much film of in the past not be this guy, becoming this guy? And in, in that way, like, is it the system fit there with Waldron? What would, or is it the talent at wide receiver that maybe, because he had this talent last year when he came in for Russell as well. Yeah. Um, but obviously he didn't have as much experience in the system. Where, where would you attribute his success to? And if I gave you, if I asked you to wrap this up, uh, this Gino part up by just saying like one to ten scale, what number would you give of this continuing the rest of the season? <laughs> uh, so I would say it's never a one thing really with a quarterback. Yeah. I think to me the one thing that's interesting about the whole Geno Smith thing is I wonder how many guys ha- have come and gone in the NFL who kind of got relegated to the bench. It's hard. It's very hard to win a starting job, right? Like yep. teams just don't give the job out willy nilly. Um, and I think that there's probably been, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of guys in the past who maybe could have ended up being good starters if they had had a little bit longer leeway, if they'd have more, had more time to, you know, develop and learn the, the intricacies of the offense. Cause you know, NFL football is just so intricate. And I think that that Goodwin thing is like a great example of, um, you know, where like a young guy maybe wouldn't see that and wouldn't know right. and would and would maybe wouldn't even have the confidence to say that, you know, I'm not going to go. And I just got done talking about how Gino runs the offense. But at the same time, he has the latitude to do those kinds of things and change plays when he really thinks it's going to work. Um, the other thing I would add real quick is that what we've seen this year with the Seahawks is they'll get to the line of scrimmage with like 17, 20 seconds left on the play clock and let Gino do his thing for a good 10, 15 seconds before snapping the ball. Like you'll see him change a play three times at times because they have that ju- they're just really good at getting the play in, getting to the line of scrimmage, looking at stuff, like figuring out what's going on. Gino can look around, make changes, get guys adjusted to where he needs them to be. And this is like, a, this is what he, what you expect from a guy who's 32. He's been in the league for 10 plus years now, right. um, or however long he's been in the league. Um, and then in terms of like my confidence going forward, I, I wouldn't, I don't expect him. I don't think he's all of a sudden going to emerge and be like a literal top 10 quarterback in the NFL. <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm really ready to go there confidently. Um, and that's what he's been doing. Honestly, like he's a, by all pretty much every metric you could look at. He's like in the top 10, um, at least efficiency wise. And you make a case he's in the top five, honestly. Right. And it's, it's pretty astounding. Um, I would not go as far to say, I think he's going to ex- continue to have this level of, of efficiency going forward always. I think there's probably going to be ups and downs. There's going to be games where he just doesn't look as good as he has along the way. But, um, you know, to be totally honest, like I'm kind of starting to get confident that he, he could be the guy for them for a few years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he could be that yeah. bridge quarterback that they need. Um, whether they take a guy this next year or wait a couple of years and kind of see how it goes, it just gives them the flexibility. You know, obviously he's not actually under contract. So I'm just kind of assuming they're right. going to sign him again. Um, but yeah, like I'm, a, I'm actually starting to believe I'm, I'm getting Gino pilled, as they say in Seahawks land. <laughs> Gino pilled. I absolutely love that. It, it was wild to watch the Chargers game and see the first play of the game. This offense comes out in empty personnel or empty formation, 12 personnel. And Gino Smith, the first read is the stick route from the number three DK Metcalf. And it was covered up really well. This dude reads from the three to the two to the one, the double out doesn't like it and come back and hits the backside dig to will freaking Disley for 16 yards. Like Seattle has this reputation as this run first team, but I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. Like Geno Smith can beat you in that touchdown pass that you guys were talking about. 
that's from the far hash, man. You need to put right. velocity and touch. That is a big boy yeah. throw right there. Yeah. And Geno Smith, all throughout his film, has that in there. The uh, the backside dig, uh, like this is the way that Seahawks fans rationalized the Russell Wilson trade all off season. It's like Russell Wilson doesn't really like throwing to the middle of the field. It's not really his thing. It's just not like quote unquote the Russell Wilson offense. The Russell Wilson offense is totally different than what we're seeing the Seahawks run right now. And you know, obviously, uh, you know, Shane Waldron, the offensive coordinator coming over from L.A., we watch what Stafford is doing. It's just backside dig, backside dig, backside yep. dig. Like, you know, what I mean, when he comes when he's not hitting his first read, at least. Um, and so activating that part of the offense and sort of finding this whole new area in the middle of the field to like yeah. work is a big part of the reason I think the Seahawks offense has been so much better than anyone expected. And why Gino is a great fit for it is because he's, you know, he's able to do that. He's got a knack for it and he's willing to attack the middle of the field. So yeah, I mean, all that stuff is, that's how we kind of convinced ourselves over the off season. Like, Oh, this might actually be good. Like, obviously you sound like sour grapes or you sound like you're delusional when you're doing this in the off season, because Russell Wilson, you know, has been such a great quarterback for the Seahawks, but there, that was the argument is basically like, look, this opens up the entire playbook. This actually is what Shane Waldron wants to run. And uh, Geno Smith is actually executing it. So that's actually, I think, Seahawks fans are weirdly not all that surprised, actually, because we've been talking about this basically all summer. So it's a it's a combination of surprise and also just basically like, wow, this is actually coming true. This is what we talked about all offseason. And I think one thing you mentioned, which is also a big reason for their success, is that they're not no longer this team that they kind of have the reputation as this run heavy, run first team. If you look at it, the Seahawks yeah. are trying and taking and completing more deep shots than most teams the nfl right now a lot of teams aren't throwing the ball downfield this year that's been a common trend seahawks yeah. are not one of those teams the seahawks are somehow one of the very handful probably a handful of teams that are so part of this has to be i assume danny the offensive line the seahawks rebuilt yeah. their offensive yeah. line this offseason so we have to talk about that you're really good with draft stuff and prospects so i really want to get into a few of these prospects and i want to start with the two offensive tackles you can start with charles cross because he was a player that was mentioned along the lines of the Giants might be interested in him. I actually mm -hmm. thought he was the sec. I would have taken him potentially. I had him in like the two, three. I thought he was well within the range of those first three tackles in the class. A lot of people felt like yeah. there was a drop off, but I don't think that's been the case so far. What have you seen from both Cross and Abe Lucas and, and what and, and what are kind of the early evaluations on them? Yeah, I mean, I think I really liked Cross coming in. In fact, I kind of waffled in the pre-draft process. I think at one point I had him as my second guy. Um, or even maybe my first guy. And then I kind of just like, I started to worry a little bit about the run blocking thing because he just mm -hmm. didn't do a ton of run blocking in college. And I, and I guess I talked myself out of it, but I really love the way that he pass blocks. And that's already kind of like translated to the NFL. I mean, you can see him, he's just so balanced the way that he uses his hands. He's so coordinated. He's so calm on the edge. Like he just never really panics. Um, and obviously he's athletic he's a former five-star guy. So that, that shouldn't be all that surprising, but like he's just transitioned to the NFL so well. Um, and so I think that's a huge deal. They needed to hit that pick. You're trading away Russell Wilson. You need to get somebody good with that pick. And the Seahawks have been, you know, obviously pretty hit or miss over the last couple of years in the draft. So it, that really is looking like a hit. And so that's super exciting. Um, and I would say it also helps like a ton for Charles Cross in particular that Geno Smith is the type of quarterback that will step up into the pocket and like his depth in the pocket is predictable like he knows exactly where Gino's going to be I think if Russell Wilson was still a starter and again this is going to sound like sour grapes it's not really it's just style of how they play these tackles probably would not look remotely as good like Russell Wilson has a problem with drifting out of the pocket when there's the faintest hint of, uh, hint of pressure you know he doesn't like to step up into the pocket which makes things difficult for guys on the edge because they don't know exactly how far to get how much depth to get all that stuff. It's, it's been a problem forever. And like Russell Wilson's always had issues with uh, pass protection. Like there's, you know, sacks are certainly relative, uh, like related to the quarterback too. So I would say that that's been a big benefit for cross in particular. And then with Abe Lucas, man, like he was a guy that Seahawks fans definitely had their eye on, like throughout the whole process coming from Wazoo. Right. Um, you know, he's, he's, I think it was actually a pretty similar deal with cross. Like I think in Seahawks land, we were both, we were both, we were all kind of surprised that, they took two guys that were not really well known for run blocking. You right. know what I mean? Like they're both coming from like air raid style offenses or air raid, you know, descendant offenses. And so um, I think both of those were a little bit surprising, but at the same time, like pass protection is so much more important and you can kind of teach a guy to run block, I guess. Right. Is the theory. 
and vice versa is a lot harder. Like you can be a good run blocker, but teaching someone to pass block is like so hard. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. Lucas looks like a huge steal at this point. Like he's been one of the better, you know, rookie tackles period. Like he's, he's just been, I think I, I've been saying, I think if they redid the draft tomorrow, like he'd probably be a late first or early second. Um, he's been that good. So yeah, they, they definitely got, I mean, man, they, they knocked that out of the park. Like imagine 10 years of Seahawks football with like offensive line problems. And then they, <laughs> they pick two guys, you know, in the first draft that Russell Wilson looked like, you know, potentially like offensive line, like paradigm shifting type guys. And so that's super exciting for them. Yeah. And that's the similar like case it, yeah. that the giants have had, right? Like 10 years of bad tackle play. And now maybe they, they got one definitely right with Thomas, hopefully with Evan Neal as well. And it's also just so yeah. funny to me before we move past this, just how fast things can change before this draft class for the Seahawks. There was so much discussion on Twitter and like, among people who do this for a living, like, wow, have you seen how bad this Seattle Seahawks regime is at drafting over the X amount of yeah, years? Look at these bad. picks, like yeah. Jordan brought all these picks. And now out of the same regime comes up with like the best draft class by far this year. Cause obviously we haven't talked about him yet, but Tyreek Willen and Kenneth Walker. So it's just so interesting how much things change from that standpoint in the NFL. Yeah. I mean, honestly, and, and if you look around the NFL, if, if you look at some of the teams, I think that are like respected as drafting teams, a lot of the time it's like you get one extremely good class that sort of like provides the foundation for that, like, you know, that view or that, that opinion. I, I'm just thinking about the saints right now for, for instance, right. like they had a couple, they had an insanely good draft a couple of years ago where they got Ram check. And there was a bunch of guys all through that, like basically every round they got like a starter in that draft. And like the Seahawks going back to, uh, I think it was either the 2012 or 2013 draft. They got like a whole bunch of guys and and it's like those types of draft classes can really buoy and, and, and create a foundation for like a reputation for, for a front office. So I think this, this is like the Seahawks are back thing, but I think yeah. there's just so much variance in, in the draft. Right. It's just such a crapshoot. It really just is a crapshoot. Um, I think it also helps that they were picking early in rounds versus late in rounds, which is, you know, obviously right. a big deal, especially in the first round. Um, in the second round. So, you know, look at, they got Kenny Walker in the second round, Charles cross in the first round. Those two guys look like, you know, long-term starters for him. So, and then you get guys like Abraham in the third Tariq Woolen in the fifth Tariq Woolen, you know, not to be like hyperbolic. Yeah. looks like a superstar. Like yeah. legitimately it's crazy. Yeah. He already has what four interceptions yeah. on the year. And I want to ask you a little bit about those offensive linemen for a second. Because I was watching the Chargers tape and I saw one way the Chargers seemed to get some sort of pressure was by using twists. So I want to ask from the previous seven opponents that the Seahawks have faced, did they face any defenses that like to load the line of scrimmage and attempt to waste blockers like Wink Martindale more than likely will against two young tackles that I'm imagining he's going to want to take advantage of? I, I don't know. That's a great question. I haven't studied it close enough to really answer that, but I do think that I mean, obviously, I, I think you're kind of alluding to what the Giants like to do. Obviously, like I, I saw one clip from this week where they were is like three guys all stacked together right in the middle of the line. <laughs> right. Like that yeah. kind of stuff, I think will definitely, you know, it has potential to give them, you know, issues. But I, I don't know. To be honest with you, I haven't like studied the the tape quite close enough with the Seahawks um, this year. But I, I imagine that's definitely going to be the game plan for them this year. And, and um, you know, yeah, I think they're still like they're rookies. And and this was a huge worry coming in. Like, oh God, the Seahawks are starting two rookie tackles. That's actually like not never happened in the NFL. Yeah. Or if it has, it's been like forever since that happened. Um, so there's still, you know, obviously there's gonna be a massive learning curve there. So I, I imagine that's gonna be definitely a big part of the game plan this week. On this on the on the front of Kenneth Walker, who's now kind of taken over this lead back here, we've seen throughout the season, really starting in week three for the Giants, and now even more so compounding itself these past two weeks. They've really struggled with misdirection. This is the Giants run defense. They've struggled with misdirection. Mm -hmm. They've struggled with runs on the perimeter. And essentially it's an issue. It's a in my mind, and I'm not sure I don't want to speak for Nick, but I'm pretty sure he's on the same page. It's a personnel issue. The Giants simply don't have the linebackers in play. Mm. How have the Seahawks found so much success with their run game? Has it been a lot of misdirection and perimeter stuff? Or is it, you know, more of just kind of the what you would come to expect from a Waldron McVay style offense, that type of zone running game? Where have they found their most success with Walker? I think it's definitely it's a combination of everything. They they're good cool. at misdirection. Like they definitely um have been utilizing, you know, motion at the at the snap and before the snap and during like after the snap or whatever, like 
Um, they've got guys kind of going across the line, obviously a lot of play action intertwined that kind of like makes it all work together. Um, and then the other thing, honestly, that's makes them, I think, especially good is they've had two really good backs this year. Like mm-hmm. Rashad Penny before he got hurt was ripping off big runs. Like he's, he was looking awesome. So good that he was actually like keeping Kenny Walker on the bench. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. um, I would say the combination of like a, a good scheme where they're, they're mixing up looks kind of like trying to v- make variations on, you know, their, their standard plays, like their outside zones or, and, and you know, their duo and all that stuff. Um, they're kind of like changing things up in games, during games, between games and all that stuff. Um, just little tweaks that like make it harder for the defense to read it. But then also just, they have good backs, like explosive guys like Penny and now Kenneth Walker, who I think if there's one thing about Kenny Walker, that is, that is, uh, really fun to watch is he presses the line kind of hides behind the guys and then boom like all of a sudden he like bounces outside and he's gone um so he he definitely does this thing where he kind of like sets up second level defenders to come in suck into the line a little bit and he kind of hides back there and then he bounces it out gets outside um and before you know it he's like got the speed and explosion to to kind of like beat him to the side so yeah i'd say it's a it's a combination of like like you're saying play action motion little tweaks on the scheme and then just two really good backs that they've had. Now they have Kenneth Walker, who's the main back because his Rashad Penny's out for the year. Um, and I think it's just been like the combination of that is they've been pretty efficient running the football. Like they've been much better than I even expected running the football. There's only four running backs in the NFL right now who average six yards a carry and two of them are Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. It's such a bummer that, that Penny got hurt, man. Cause he, he was finally starting to get his career kind of going. Obviously he, right. he's been yeah. suffering a bunch of injuries throughout his whole career. So it's definitely a huge bummer, but yeah, it's fun to watch Kenneth Walker, man. He's, he's, he looks like a special talent back there. You know, um, obviously it's still very early, but he looks really good so far. From Walker's Danny, standpoint, yeah, go ahead. No, Nick. no you're good, Dan. I'm just going to ask you. say from the Walker standpoint, just to, just to ask you one more thing on that. What have you noticed about him traits-wise that's really stood out to you? Is it the contact balance? Is it the kind of the acceleration, the vision? Yeah, all of the above, honestly. Yeah. Like, if you look at him, man, he's built. He's thick. Like, he's a kind of a thick guy. <laughs> he's He <laughs> runs really low to the ground. He kind of has, like, a bow-legged gait, um, which I think probably helps him with, like, his balance. He's got, like, a gyroscopic little, little bit of balance where he'll get he'll take a hit and he just kind of bounces sideways. Um, and then keeps going. Um, so yeah, I would say he's, he's got a very good combination of he's physical, but he's also extremely explosive. Like he's able to blow past pursuit angles to get to the outside, you know, to beat guys to the angle. Um, he ran a four, three, I think in, in, in the combine and everyone was like, Holy crap. Like I didn't expect that. But then when you see him play, it's like, Oh, I don't know Forever he he's like, just like, this is a, such a cliche term. I know, but like, he's deceptively fast. He doesn't really look like he's right. moving that fast. And then all of a sudden he just beats everybody to the end zone. And like last week, I think he ran, he clocked in on from the next gen stats, like 22 something miles an hour, which was the yep. fastest ball carrier ever or not ever this year for any this player. Year, yep. So, I mean, I don't know, man, he did, he doesn't honestly, like it doesn't look like he's moving that fast, but then he just like blows past everybody. Yeah. It's that stride length. It's incredible. Yeah. It's pretty fun to watch for sure. Now, Danny, I want to ask you about DK Metcalf, who more than likely will not be playing in this right. game. That's obviously a huge loss, but yeah. what is that going to do to the to the offensive personnel? Now, Seattle likes to run a lot of 12 personnel, 13 personnel as is, and now mm-hmm. you remove DK Metcalf. Is that going to force more 12, more 13 personnel, do you imagine? And I ask this primarily yeah. because the New York Giants want to run quarter as much as they can. No linebackers, inside linebackers on the field. And if you're rolling out 12, 13 personnel, I think Wink Martindale, he's done it before, but I don't envision him doing it consistently against a team who could run the football as good as Seattle. So what do you think is going to happen without DK Metcalf on the field? That is a great question. I think... If, it, if they were really going to their strengths and like their good players, quote unquote, good players, I, I you know, obviously I, I'm excited about some of their young receivers. Um, but, you know, Marquise Goodwin came in and he's not a young guy. He's like over 30. But like some of their other young guys like uh, D. Eskridge, uh, Derek Young, potentially he's a he's a seventh round rookie that they have this year. Like they could get some playing time. I think that's exciting to see. But if they're really playing like they're they're seasoned veterans that they probably trust, like you said, it's probably going to be more like 12 personnel, 13 personnel sometimes even because they have three good tight ends. No fan, Will Disley, Colby Parkinson's right. been getting some snaps and they've all kind of contributed in their own ways. Um, and, I, and I'm just thinking back to like watching some of the some of the biggest runs that they've had this year. And it's like, honestly, they got like eight guys on the line of scrimmage, like just 
all bunched up in the middle of the field. And I think that actually fits, um, you know, with Kenneth Walker's style, because like, again, he kind of just hides back there and then all of a sudden he just bounces it and he's gone. Um, you know, and so he's really good at kind of like, you know, slipping through the cracks in the, in the offensive line. And so I think they kind of like to bunch it up and go heavy, do like the smash mouth style thing, because that kind of like fits with what Kenneth Walker likes to do and what he's good at. And so I would say, yeah, yeah, probably they, they'll do a lot more like two tight end stuff, even maybe some three tight end stuff. Um, just because I think that's getting like their best 11 on the field more often than not. I still like DS Gridge is still very much work in progress. And I don't know if like, you know, Penny Hart is going to come in and like run a bunch of snaps or, or what. Yeah. So it, uh, to me, that's getting their best players on the field most seasoned and anyway. That makes sense. I have another question on Charles Cross, just because I kind of had the same evaluation as you when you watched him on film. You saw a guy who, even when it seemed like he was beat, he recovered. And like yeah. you said, he was never panicky. And I, it's interesting to see that translate over. One thing that I heard is a knock on him, which I didn't think would actually impact him at the NFL level, but some people did. They didn't love his feet, his feet positioning, but uh, mm. you know, when he gets into his drop and just playing and mostly from playing within that, like you said, air raid principled system. We expect potentially, at least for some snaps, Kayvon Thibodeau to have an opportunity to maybe match up against him in this game. He's lined up a lot on the left, but he could have some, obviously he's had some snaps on the right side and he'll get some opportunities there. Mm-hmm. What has, if at all, has Cross struggled in any of the games so far this season, or has he been really good in all of them? And if he has, what kind of pass rusher has given him trouble? Um, he's the, honestly like the only thing that I can really think about, think of when I, when I think yeah. of Cross this year is just had a lot of penalties, you know? Okay. Um, I still think he's, he's definitely like athletically and physically. I think he can hold up with, with some of the best pass rushers. Like he did really well uh against Khalil Mack I, I saw Nate Tice posted a, a cut up of uh, all the, st- the snaps against Khalil Mack and he was definitely holding his own so it's like he he can go up against some of these good guys and you know hold his own I don't know if he's like he's not necessarily dominating but he's definitely holding his own um I think the one thing that he's he's had issues with is he's had a bunch of penalties like false starts holds things like that I think he's just got to clean that up that's like the main that's the main gripe I would have so far with him is just too many penalties but like honestly like it's hard to kind of like nitpick. He's been playing so well, like relative to like the fact that he's a rookie left tackle. So um, I would say that would be kind of like the biggest thing. He does get caught holding a little bit. Sometimes if he gets beat like to the edge, he'll, he'll do like the bear hug thing with like one hand where like hook his, hook his arm up. And it's just like, man, that's a little too obvious. Like (laughs) let, let the guy go or whatever. Maybe it's just, that's how their coach. But um, yeah, I'd say that would be like his main issue so far. It's just a few too many penalties. I, I think that's going to be an issue for Charles Cross. I think he's going to struggle against Kayvon Thibodeau because mm. Kayvon Thibodeau, one of his best traits right now is his ability to explode off the line of scrimmage and win high side through the yeah. outside shoulder. And from the film that I've seen on Charles Cross, it's not a weakness in his game, but there's a little bit of a vulnerability there. Yeah. And I think it can be exploited by Kayvon Thibodeau. So I'm interested to see how yeah. that materializes through the game. For sure. I, I would say I agree. Like when you get a high side rusher, and gets a step on him that's when he starts to like that's when the penalties start to get racked up or like the the mistakes start to happen so that'll be definitely something to watch all right danny thank you so much for taking time today we know you gotta run out and get your dog which we we appreciate on this (laughs) podcast nick's a dog owner himself right now um but i will ask you this to close it out you can choose you can opt not to answer it we've had one guest not answer it everyone else has so based on those numbers you can decide if you want to answer or not do you have a prediction for this game and can you give us your prediction? Oh man. <laughs> um, that's a great question. I, I think I'm going to go, I don't know, man, where, where are we leaning? Do you think it's going to be a high scoring game? Um, I do because the giants defense looks so bad on tape last week, but I mean, and the Seahawks defense has been getting gashed against the run. Yes. So like, I'm just like a little concerned about These that. I, I want to say 0.7. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a little bit like higher scoring game. I'm going to say 28-26 Seahawks. Okay. All right. Well, there you have it. That's Danny <laughs> Kelly of the Ringer. Danny, why don't you let everyone know where they can find all of your work and where they can follow you on social platforms? Uh, Danny B. Kelly on Twitter, and then you can find my work at TheRinger.com plus the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Uh, and then pretty soon we're going to kick off the Ringer NFL Draft Show, which nice. is starting up in December. So I'm starting to cram for the next draft. It's already here. December. I can't believe it. Or I can't wow. believe that. <laughs> yeah. Nick yeah. and I get going in like 
not December, like February. No, I, I usually think for yourself, Dan. I'm well into it in December. <laughs> yeah. I usually get started a little bit later than I think like the majority of people, but like this year I'm definitely getting ahead and in, in trying to like be able to hit the ground running essentially in early December. So yeah, that's the plan. Awesome. So you guys can find that. And I highly suggest following Danny Kelly for all of his work, but specifically his draft content. It's next level stuff. So Danny, thank Appreciate you so that. much for joining us today and have a great rest of your weekend. All right. Thanks guys. Can't wait for the game. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You may see your coworkers cracking open a can in your 9 a.m. stand-up meeting and think, you're drinking? It's a Tuesday afternoon. I get it. We're stuck in this meeting room. But you can't be drinking beer at work. Oh, it's most likely not beer. It's a new Mountain Spring water brand called Liquid Death. One may wonder or even ask, why is it called Liquid Death? Well, because it will brutally murder your thirst. And their infinitely recyclable tall boy cans are helping to bring death to plastic bottles. They also donate 10% of their profits from every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. So, like a famous television character whose show shares the name of a star defensive lineman on the Giants with the last name Lawrence, this drink is killing to save. How altruistic. It tastes good. It's refreshing. Everyone should go and try it. It kind of looks like an energy drink, but it is just water. So please go get Liquid Death at your local Whole Foods Market, Target, and Stop and Shop stores or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com. Use the promo code BIGBLUE. So that's liquiddeath.com slash BIGBLUE. What's going on, Big Blue Banter listeners? Do you like to place bets and find ways to optimize your betting experience? Well, then oddstrader.com is the place for you. Odds Trader is a place to compare odds from all the major sports books. You can also compare the different sign-up codes and promotions from sports books to get the best deal. Odds Trader offers handicapping, play-by-play updates, player statistics, key game statistics, live scoring and tracking, projected game day weather, and Bet Tracker allows you to keep records of all your games and betting activity. So if you like to place bets and you want to get the most out of that experience, go to oddstrader.com and use the promo code BLUEWIRE. That's oddstrader.com slash BLUEWIRE. OddsTrader, the number one site for all your game day bets. That was Danny Kelly of The Ringer. Great little interview there talking Seahawks football. It's been a really great season for them too, man. They have this baller-ass baller rookie class of just balling out. Abe Lucas in the third-round tackle, unreal immediately. George Charles Cross immediately playing great football at left tackle. Tariq I mean, Woolen at this point is potentially you know rookie of the year on defense at that point. He's a fourth-round pick. And what a fit in Pete Carroll's in that you know Seattle system there. And then even Kenneth Walker. I mean, that's four impact rookies, so... I'm excited to see this this matchup, Nick. I think it's two quality teams playing football. Yeah, they weren't expected to be preseason, obviously, but they are. That's the state of the NFL right now. The Giants and Seahawks are playing good football, both those teams. So it'll be a great matchup. What are some other things we're looking out for matchup-wise in this one, Nick? Well, first, Wollin was a fifth-round pick, but we also didn't yeah. mention Kobe Bryant, who was their fourth-round right. pick, their other starting corner, and Boye Mafe, who was their second-round pick. And Boye Mafe was a little raw, but... That's a really good draft by Seattle. And I also, 
wanted to circle back to something that Danny brought up during the podcast when he was talking about really good draft classes and how it paints a picture of a general manager for years to come, similar to Mickey Loomis down in New Orleans. Isn't that exactly what happened in 2007 with Jerry Reese? Like, that, that was such a good draft class. Like, every single one of those guys, except for, um, who is it? Adam Coates, I think, the offensive yeah, lineman they drafted on day yeah. three, had some sort of impact in the Giants winning the Super Bowl that year. It's crazy. That draft class alone basically bought Jerry Reese 10 years of being the general manager. <laughs> Zane. I mean, it wasn't just that alone. It was that, and then it was starting to fall off, and then he hit Beckham in 2014, and that had so much star appeal attached to it. Even though it was just one player, and the Giants weren't like a Super Bowl team immediately with him. It wasn't the quarterback, but it was one player that had so much hype that bought him another three years because he was – Around that time, it was starting to tail off, like the 2000 after the 2011 class and all that stuff that went into it. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, those well, one class like that could really, do, and it's so it's interesting because there were there's been like at least flashes that not obviously not the level of the Seahawks class. Like there's no woolen, there's no, but there's some flashes from this Giants class right away with Joe Shane. I think when they're on the field, the issue has just been they got all these injuries. There was nothing they can do, but like. Daniel Bellinger, Dean Belton, they've given them really good snaps. Evan Neal, Kayvon Thibodeau, Wondell Robinson, they've all played pretty well when healthy. Obviously, all have been injured somehow. <laughs> but, you know, they've played Same. football. And Even Cordell Flott had some decent tape before the injury. So, you know, this isn't going to be that level class, but it is interesting how these classes can totally reshape. And I think part of why he said that, Nick, and you could tell me if, if you feel like this is wrong or different, but it's just because – those guys could be your core guys that you then have under contract for four years, a team control, insanely cheap against the cap. And then those are the guys you resign. It's not like you go to free agency, try to get a Kenny Galladay who has issues you don't know about from another team. It's guys that you know, they've been in the system, they've been in the program, they've been in the culture. Um, and so that's part of why it, it helps so much to hit on these draft picks, these early draft picks, especially. Exactly. And speaking of early draft picks with Seattle, we talked a lot about Charles Cross, but after watching Charles Cross's tape, I'm writing a piece for Big Blue View on him right now. It should be out probably by the time yeah. you're listening to this. It's easy to see why the Giants had significant interest in this guy because he has real movement skills. And you know what? There's some tape of him helping out on double teams. And yes, it's a double team block, but the power that he brings to the double team block, it's displaced several professional athletes on the defensive line. It's pretty, I would say remarkable how he's able to engage that power and then climb and locate at the second level. So uh, from a run blocking standpoint, it wasn't concern. I think it was the right concern given that he came from the air raid, as we said, but he's not that bad as a run blocker. There's not a lot of terrible tape as a run blocker and the pass blocking is also pretty good, but I think there are liabilities that Wink Martindale will exploit. We brought it up with Danny. I think Kayvon Thibodeau can have his way with Charles Croft winning high side because he has a soft outside shoulder. He lets people, and this is something he did in college and we talked about it too. He lets people into that outside shoulder and then he holds when he's beat. And Kayvon Thibodeau is one of the better, I don't want to say he's one of the better edge rushers in the league in doing so, but if you want to pick one trait that Kayvon Thibodeau is mastering right now and we're seeing it right before all of our eyes, it's winning high side into the outside shoulder and landing the rip move. And if Kayvon Thibodeau mm -hmm. can develop inside counter move, which we have not seen yet, right. damn, we're talking about something really special there. So I think that's a way that he can be exploited. And I also think another way he could be exploited in miscommunications. And we know Wink Martindale is a master at scheming some sort of offensive line protection miscommunication. So I think there's going to be a lot of tight ends to help Charles Cross and Abe Lucas, because if you go through their film, it's not like they're playing terribly, but twists have given them some issues. They they really bite on the on the penetrator. And then that looper just comes around and he's a little bit late to get there. His hips just completely flipped and he's out of position. And then I also seen whenever teams did load the line of scrimmage like Vance Joseph and the Cardinals when they played there was a couple times where two guys blocked one guy and then you had a free mm -hmm. rusher because there was a miscommunication because nobody knew exactly who their assignments were so those are little things I'm paying attention to on the defensive standpoint when they are passing the football that I think the Giants can gain a slight edge on that can allow them to be really competitive in this game and I don't say competitive in the fact that they can't be but I think the Seahawks have a couple things going for them the fact that the Giants were terrible as a run defense last week is, is one of the main ones. But if you want to harass Geno Smith, this defensive coordinator is the defensive coordinator that I feel like can take advantage of two rookie tackles and harass a quarterback who's playing elite football at this point.
Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I think the key thing being what you brought up to Danny and Danny kind of confirmed on the podcast and then you kind of broke down just there. Anytime you have rookie tackles in, the whole concept of what Wink Martindale wants to be philosophically as a defensive coordinator and what he wants his defense to be is, you know, dictate to the quarterback and, you know, have these simulated pressures, have confusion, like you said, where there's one, two offensive linemen blocking just one Giants guy. Sometimes we've seen this here. It's been like two offensive linemen buying no one and no one and everybody drops and no one rushes from the side. Gives us a better opportunity for that to actually work, I think, with these rookie offensive linemen. So I'd say the Jags had like these all-star offensive linemen in, but they were some, you know, Cam Robinson has a good amount of snaps under his belt at the NFL level, and so does Taylor, Jawan Taylor over there. These guys have much fewer, so confusing them is one way. I think one thing that was really important that you mentioned that stood out to me, Nick, was the t- the twists, because what did we see last week? One of the, There wasn't many there weren't many snaps where the Giants defense got any kind of pressure on Trevor Lawrence, but one of the few snaps was when they ran a little twist game, and that's something that maybe they can bring back more often in this one. I'm not really sure why they haven't run it much. I think I saw a chart this week that somebody posted and I retweeted it. I don't remember it exactly, but it was uh, it was a post that showed how much stunts and twists teams have run. Dallas is number one in the NFL by far with Dan Quinn. And Giants were like 26 or 27, so they're very, very low on that list. It has not been a big part of their arsenal. I'm wondering if that's what maybe just scheme-based, maybe just coaching-based, or maybe just they're not at the point yet where they're you know working that within their game plan per se, but this could be the game to do it right against these rookie tackles. This would be a good game to start doing things like that. Anything you can to kind of confuse the offensive linemen, in my opinion, when they're rookies is a very good strategy. And then one more thing on cross that you mentioned that I want to unpack too, is I think we both agreed when we watched this film, the run blocking issue, quote unquote, like with his profile, will he ever be a good man? For us, it was always like just that he didn't really do it. Because when we did see him move in space specifically, specifically not on run plays, but on the screens they ran at, at uh, when he was in college, he moved really well in space. He was a really good functional mover. And not exactly like a Rashawn Slater, but gave me shades of that Slater movement skills and that Slater level footwork and foot quickness. And so it doesn't surprise me that you say when you're watching his tape, and I haven't watched any of his tape yet this year yet with the Seahawks. I haven't had time. I'm happy you had a chance to unpack some of their tape this year. But it doesn't surprise me when you say he hasn't really even been a liability much in the run game either. Um, but it is cool to see that one of the things he struggled with is one of the things that Thibodeau can do well. So, you know, you just got to hope that the Giants can figure out a way to to scheme to take advantage of him in this one and potentially even Abe Lucas. Yeah, and Abe Lucas as well. I was paying right. a little bit more attention to Charles Cross. Abe sure. Lucas looks fine from what I've seen. And the thing about Cross, too, is he was executing reach blocks. They run a lot of zone, which I'll get yep. into in a little bit. He was executing his reach blocks, getting to that outside shoulder, swiveling his hips around when it war- when it was warranted. He was executing backside scoop blocks, which means he's not allowing those defenders to kind of undercut him. So as a run blocker, he impressed me. And like I said, on those double team climb type plays, he was really double teaming. He took the the power really seriously to get his hip through the hip of the three technique who was being initiated by Damian Lewis. So that's one thing I think that he has going for him. It's not something that I'm, I'm overly concerned about with the New York Giants because the Giants are pretty good taking on those double team blocks. But what the Giants have struggled with in terms of defending the run has been movement in the backfield through motion and a lot of pin-pull concepts to the outside. I think one thing that I hope can stay consistent, and I'm not overly confident about this because of what Danny broke down about Kenneth Walker's ability to stay small behind the offensive line, that offense runs a lot of zone, a lot of stretch zone. I feel like the Giants have been a lot better against zone type of running concepts rather than the power gap. Yes. But still, those linebackers need to be disciplined, man. You need to be disciplined in zone just like you do in power gap. But it seemed like any time you faced a team like Dallas who used a lot of pre-snap motion or Jacksonville who had a lot of eye candy in the backfield, those linebackers had no idea where the hell to go. Whereas Seattle is much more... It's zone. Everybody steps play side. Mm-hmm. That's a big tell that everyone's going to step play side. And there's not as much motion in the backfield as previous opponents that give Giants a ton of fits like Baltimore. Baltimore is all power gap, essentially. You know, there right. are double pullers coming, a lot of counter stuff like that. I don't think the Giants are going to see as much of that this week. And that could assist their run defense, which, again, has to be stressed, sucked last week. I think it should. I think it's a really astute point by you, Nick, because I really think it should help the Giants run defense in this game because it. Okay, yeah, we had some examples in our film breakdown that those of you who haven't seen can check out on YouTube. Now we broke down the defensive film of the Giants versus the Jags. We had some examples of like, okay, bad run fits, bad that two players in the same gap or, you know, Jalen Smith, whoever it may be, Crowder not not getting to the gap fast enough. But the bigger issues for me, at least with these two linebackers, is just they 
have trouble scraping over the top and making plays sideline to sideline based on instincts, whatever it is, speed, the combination of all those things. So that is a much bigger issue against power gap than it would be against zone. I can kind of trust them maybe, hopefully, to just be like, all right, we have to be really disciplined in which run, you know, in our run fits here. But as long as we're really disciplined in our run fits, there's not too much that can kill us in this game. Um, and so it takes it. I feel like and you could tell me if this is wrong, but when you face a zone heavy team versus maybe a power and gap heavy team, it relies, it, it takes the athleticism deficiency a little bit out of it. I think that's maybe one way you could look at it, but I also think it allows players like Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams to have more of an impact in zone. Okay. Whereas in power gap, right. it's like we're creating a seal and we're going to not allow anybody who is inside of the three technique to have any sort of impact right. on this play, essentially, unless they split the seal, which Dexter Lawrence is good enough to do that. So I think that's one way that Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams, they can move laterally, stay disciplined in their gaps, but just remove any kind of cutback lane. So as long as the linebackers are in position and those edge rushers are setting the edge, the defense can be can be basically formidable and not really create too many cutback lanes. My, my, my concern, I think, is Kenneth Walker is good enough to find those cutback lanes and the Giants linebackers aren't necessarily the most disciplined so far through this season. I just, I still can, I can still see success for Kenneth Walker, but I do think if this was more of a power gap team, that's more so where the Giants significantly struggle. So we'll have to wait and see. Hopefully Dexter Lawrence, Leonard Williams, because remember week one, Dan, like the linebackers sucked in week one, in week one, right? Right. Giants shut down Derrick Henry. And what kind right. of scheme do they run? A lot of zone stretch, a lot of right. wide zone type of running scheme. So that's what we're going to see Great with point. Seattle. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And it makes a lot of sense from a football schematic standpoint, right? Just to, I think it's an easy concept to grasp when you're running more like pin pull and power gap concepts. You can essentially, if you're running it right, take those guys out of the play in some ways. Like take the best players on the Giants run defense. Who are the best run stoppers right now on this roster? Dexter Lawrence, Leonard Williams, one and two, by far and away the best run stoppers. It's not even really close. You don't have any kind of Blake Martinez in this all roster to be like an excellent run stopper at that second level. So if you take them out of the play and you put the stress on the other players in the Giants defense, that's probably a good thing for you as an opposing offense. If you give them opportunity to potentially make plays, by running a lot of stretch zone, like you said, it's a good thing for the Giants because this is where the strength of their defense is. And I wonder if we will see something. I doubt we'll see something similar to week one where they kind of like also had a lot of stacked loaded boxes, the Giants and things of that nature just sell out fully to take, take away your Henry. I just don't know if you can do that right now with the way that Geno Smith is throwing the ball downfield because right now he's just in such a groove dropping bucket passes week after week. Um, so I don't know if you'll be able to do that, but it is interesting that this is this is a better matchup for the Giants. The Giants come into this game allowing, what, 5.7 yards per carry, I think it is, which is insane. The Seahawks allow 4.9 yards per carry. So it really should be like a wild game with like 400 rushing yards combined for these teams. Few possessions because the clock's just grinding and ticking and winding all game. It could be the case, but at the same time, I get this weird feeling based on how you're like setting this up schematically, X's and O's wise, that the Giants could have just one of those days where their run defense is good. Everyone didn't expect it. They're like, oh, they're going to get killed, right? It's Kenneth Walker. He's running so hot right now, and their defense is running so bad in the run. But maybe just the way that it's set up and the way that the Seahawks want to approach this run game, it could seriously benefit the Giants in this one. And the loss of DK Metcalf has to be factored in. Yes. That's a big loss right there. That's a big loss. You don't have to worry about bracketing anybody if you were to yeah. bracket. It's not like the Giants are a big bracket team. Anyway, so and Tyler Lockett, he's 30. He's still very explosive. He's still very good. But he's also, I think, kind of dinged up, like not, not fully injured or anything, but not necessarily fully healthy either. And that's going to be in the slot. That's going to be a matchup I'm a little worried about as well as Darnay Holmes. If he's out there playing a lot of snaps against oh, yeah. Tyler Lockett, who's a crafty route runner and who is slippery. So not necessarily looking forward to that, but I think this is going to be a very interesting game and I don't have a great feel for the final score because I could see it easily going the way Danny is saying, but I think what you kind of alluded to there, everything is set up to be this like huge, like offensive output. But then sometimes when we have that kind of, you know, supposition, it doesn't end up going that way. Yeah. And it's like a 19 to 17 game or something ugly. I think it's going to be more high scoring than what we've seen just because both of these defenses have issues. I, I think week Martinell, though, I think in practice this week. I think he really stressed the fundamentals again because last week, just guarding simple power gap, it was like nobody knew what their assignment was to fill. And I'm not even sure why. You got to take the inside. You got to take the outside and contain off the edge. But 
multiple times there were miscommunications on who was supposed to do what. And I'm not really certain why that happened, but that has to be fixed. Yeah, I would think you're right. Like, I think a lot of what we saw on tape and we broke it down was just things that are unacceptable from a defensive standpoint, like not like, oh, you were outmatched. You were out schemed here. It was like you weren't lined up right. You were two players going into the same gap. There was <laughs> Darnay Holmes for some odd reason on that run against Travis Etienne, not having outside contain, breaking outside contain and trying to make a play around the tackle to his left. Like just weird things that like they'll be like that, that can easily, in my opinion, be coached out. But I think it'll be a little bit more high scoring, like Danny said, and like you alluded to, not because of the run stuff. Like the Giants allowed 5.7 yards per carry. I think it's going to be the passing game. I think Geno Smith is going to be able to hit some big chunk plays against this Giants pass defense as the Giants try to take away Kenneth Walker schematically. And that's something Ryan Tannehill did a good job of later in the game, in that week one game. But the Titans ultimately just didn't give him a lot of opportunities to do that. They really wanted to make it clear. We are going to run the ball with Derrick Henry. We're going to win this type of game. We had a lead the whole time, the Titans, and it's classic variable, run, run, run. I don't know that that'll be the case with the Seahawks. They've been pretty pass heavy in spots people didn't expect them to be. And like Danny said, they've been allowing Geno a lot of freedom before the snap to audible into things that he likes, different route combinations, take shots when a play is not even designed to take a shot on. So I have a, I'm way more concerned about the Giants' pass defense in this game, Nick, to be honest with you. And so do we want to get to final scores now or do we want to do anything else? Yeah, we can get the final okay. scores. You want to go first or second? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. So, unfortunately, I think I'm going to go with Seattle in this game. And I think it's going to be similar to what Danny said. I think this will end up being like a 30 to 28 game. I think there's easily a path to where the New York Giants can win. I think the fact that DK Metcalf isn't there is definitely going in the Giants' favor. I also think the miles the Giants have traveled is going to wear on them at this point. I mean, this is all the way up in the Pacific Northwest. That's a far travel after going to Florida. Second back-to-back -back road game. And then three weeks ago, they were in London. That's a lot of traveling right before the bye week. I think that's going to work against them. And also just seeing how the defense struggled with simple things in an environment that's going to be much better than the environment that they're playing in this week up in Seattle. That's something that really concerns me. And I also think you're going to see a lot of 12, 13 personnel, which is going to force Wink Martindale's hand to put Tay Crowder, Jalen Smith on the football field, and that can easily be exploited. Now, I think the Giants should probably sign a linebacker by the name of IK and Impali, but uh, I'll leave that one alone if you get that reference. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's referencing uh, the linebacker who punched Geno Smith in the face during his <laughs> Jets tenure. For those who don't remember that, that was a crazy story. Um yeah, Nick, I think you nailed a lot of it here. So I predicted the Giants to beat the Ravens on our preview podcast. That's a wild prediction to make. In no year would we have been picking the Giants over the Ravens, potentially, in a spot like that. I thought they'd win. We didn't do a preview pod last week, but I thought they would beat the Jaguars, too. I picked them to win. I bet them against the—I took the money line in that. So you, you, if you want it, I can show you proof through my horrific, horrific DraftKings account that's just been me depositing over and over again because betting sports oh, is so rough, rough. man. It's so bad. But um, but then I hit random stuff, too. I hit Jerson Verlander, Cy Young this year. I hit Shohei Tanu MVP. And those are like plus 2,200. So it always keeps me afloat. But um, this week, it's going to be different. Despite picking them against the Ravens and they won, despite picking the Jags and they won, I'm going to pick the Seahawks in this one by a score of 26 to 24. So definitely more high scoring than any Giants game. My concerns here in this game start with the Seahawks is by far and away. Seattle's by far and away the hardest place they've had to play on the road so far. And it's not even close. No offense to those Titans fans. Obviously, the Jacksonville game, we don't even need to talk about. It was basically a Giants home game. It's like 60-40 from what I'm hearing. And then the Packers in 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 uh, London, it's like, yeah, there were more Packer fans there, but that wasn't really like the environment's going to be in Seattle. It's insanely loud. They've been speculated to, and people believe they pump noise into that stadium. Who knows if that's the case, but it sounds insanely loud, especially when they're good and they are good right now. They're four and three and they have the entire fan base behind them. This isn't like we're rolling into Seattle. They were as bad as expected, but the Giants are still good like they're but they didn't. Let's say they're like two and whatever five. No, no, no. This is a team that's winning football games. So that fan base is going to be behind them. When you combine that with what I saw on defense, like you said, and I personally think they're going to give up a lot of explosive plays in the past game, even without TK Metcalf, though, that helps a lot. That Metcalf's not out there. I just concern. I'm just a bit concerned with the defense more so in this game than anything else. So I think the Giants' offense will actually put up 24 and look pretty damn solid in this game, to good. But 
The defense scares me, so I am going to predict uh, my first Giants loss in a while. 26 Seahawks, 24 Giants. Yeah, it's, I think it's going to be a fun game. I think there's definitely a path to where the Giants can win, as I said. But if I had to yeah. pick one, that's the direction I'm going in. I think there are things working against New York. And I think New York, as Brian Dable says, they're 6-1. and one, And he really means this. There's a lot of work to do. This is a, yeah. a team that is six and one that has a lot of work ahead of them. And I love the fact that the head coach consistently drives that message home. I think it's resonating with the roster. And I think that's going to go a long way. I, I honestly believe the foundation in place right now, and this doesn't even need to be said, so I don't even know why I'm saying it, is is excellent. This could be an elite foundation, like one of the number one foundations in terms of young coaching staffs and general managers. Like this is an absolute grand slam what the New York Giants found in Joe Shane and Brian Dable and how they are cohesive together. Like I'm so excited about the future of this team and they're six and one. I'm excited about this season, but at the yeah. same time, I do think this is a tough matchup and I can see the Giants losing this football game, but I'm really hoping I come back Sunday night, Dan and I record a podcast and I got egg all over my face. Denny's breakfast. I don't give a crap. I hope we win this football game and I think they can, but it's going to be tough. And if Wink Martindale doesn't fix the defense, they're not going to win this game. Because Travis yeah. Etienne, Christian Kirk, Zay Jones should have each had long touchdown runs. Yeah. But for whatever reason, their vision is blind. Okay. Because they, 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 I don't even know what they were thinking on some of their runs. Zay Travis Jones Etienne had like, is the most egregious to me by far of them all. Zay Jones literally <laughs> ran right into his blocker who was blocking <laughs> Darnay Holmes instead of cutting it up field where he had nothing but green grass. Like, I, yeah. I just don't get it. And then you even like factor in the the, the throwback pass on yeah, that final ETN drive. Drop, right. That's a touchdown. If, he, if ETN doesn't slip there, that's probably a touchdown because that dude is fast. He might not yeah. have any vision at all, but he is explosive. So again, Giants won that game though. Fair and square. Not saying yep. they didn't, but the defense really needs some freaking work. Hopefully they come we come back Sunday night for the reaction pod. And it's like another one of those where the Giants were down in the fourth and somehow found a way to win. Because realistically, if the Giants can win this game, this is by far the toughest of their next three. If they can win this game to go to seven and one, there is a chance. Like, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. There's a fair chance. Like, you have to say there's a good chance they can go into that Thanksgiving game nine and one. Because it's Detroit and Houston after this, right? Like the Giants at this point, we've said the whole year up, oh, we can't consider every any game to be a must win for the Giants or a game they should win I'm not so sure that's a point the fair to say anymore like at some point you have to trash that and put it to the you know put it behind you put it in the trash bin and move on and reassess where you're at because at this point they're a six and one team for a reason a lot they'd be losing a lot of these close games if they were one of those stupid bad teams but as a six and one team and if they can beat the Seahawks on the road with the Seahawks having all this momentum against seven and one they should beat the Houston Texans, no matter where the hell that game is. They should beat the Detroit Lions, no matter where the hell that game is either. Detroit Lions are a really bad team. They're one in five. They probably have the worst defense in the NFL, in my mind, schematically, and just what, what's left. They have Hutchinson, that's true, and he's helping. And the Houston Texans with Lovey Smith, That's those aren't teams they should lose to. So there is a chance if we come back Sunday night, it's another fourth quarter win, and they just take care of business for the next two weeks. And one of those even has a bye to rest up and stuff before, so like they can really come in fresh. There's a chance they can come into that Thanksgiving game at nine and one, which is one of the most insane things I could even think about. Like watching Thanksgiving with my extended family, they're all diehard Giants fans. Shout out Uncle Steve and Ari. Those two listen to the podcast the most regularly. And obviously my family. They're they're good supporters of mine. But um if we go into that nine and one, man, it's gonna be the most fun Thanksgiving I've had in decade, at least. Can't wait. I can't wait, yeah. man. It's gonna be it's gonna be great if that does happen. And even if it doesn't, this is still yeah, a worst case scenario. Right they're still six it. and three. That's the best part. No matter what, this Thanksgiving game means a lot. They're six and three, worst case. So, and that's the worst, worst case. I don't think they're losing these next three games. Or I'm sorry, six and four they would be. Yeah, but I don't think they're losing yeah. these next three games anyway. Yep. All right. That's all we have for today. This is the preview podcast, Giants Seahawks. Hopefully, most likely we'll be getting you a mailbag shortly after this. Um, so Hope you enjoyed the content this week, especially with the added Kadarius Tony bonus and really want to hammer home how much we would appreciate if you guys checked out our YouTube content, man, because and I know this is on YouTube as well. You might be look, listening to it, but the film breakdowns we're doing now, Mondays and Tuesdays, we're, we're pouring in four, four hours each. I mean, four hours total to these things. Actually, this week was like four and a half hours. So we're just going every play. We're giving you a look at every single play analysis on every play. You can watch the film back with us. We run it back a bunch of times. So if you enjoy the X's and O's of why the Giants are winning these games right now and how they're winning that's the best place to get the information on so please check that out and make sure you subscribe and like on youtube to help us build that out as well 
Um, and otherwise, have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.